What I might get you to do is just with the person next to you, share one big decision that you've got to make in the next year and one little decision. Take a moment with the person next to you. One big decision, one little decision. Okay, let's, let's hear some of the, the answers. So who's willing to share their friend's little decision? What were some of the little decisions? I won't repeat that one on the microphone, but that is a decision that, that uh, everyone needs to know about. Yep. What other little decisions do you face? Yep. What's happening? Go back for seconds. Is it really scrambled eggs? What are some of the big decisions? If you, now, don't share your friends, but if you want to share yours, if you're willing to share. Where will you send your kids to school? Big decision. Where to live? Where to live? Big decision. Shapes a lot. Will I fit in? Yeah, will I fit in? Is that a place that I, I'll, I'll be okay? Yeah. What are the big decisions? Sorry? How to spend your time. Yeah, shapes a lot. Well, if you are an adult in Australia with an income, you have the power to make decisions about more aspects of your life than almost anybody else in the history of the world. Where will you live? You choose basically from any suburb, in basically any city, in basically any country, and every one of those places will offer you a dramatically different shape of your life. And that's just where you live. We've talked about some of the other big ones. What job you'll work, how much you'll work, will you have kids if God enables that, and if so, how many? And you know, oftentimes we're not in control of that, but even then, will you foster or adopt? There's, of course, school choices. There's what level of lifestyle you'll set as normal and what that costs. And so then what's left over to save for the future or to be generous with, what holidays you'll have, what car, what phone, what clothes. There's a question of what church you'll plant yourself in. And then as, as was shared, time. That's just a whole big area of decision making. How much time will you spend at work versus with your friends, versus with your family, versus serving, versus helping, versus rest and recreation? I wonder, who here does feel the weight of their decision-making? Do you feel the weight of your decision-making? Of course, there, there are limits to it. But in many ways, you have the power to shape your life however you want. At your funeral, there'll be a story of your life. And you're writing it every single day with permanent marker with the decisions that you make and all of that. It's just amplified by the knowledge that your decisions affect other people. It has an impact on your friends, on your family, your church family. Especially if God gives you the gift of being a parent, what a responsibility. Your, your habits, your decisions will shape the lives of your wife, your kids, more than any other person's will. Their kids. The decisions you make will ripple for generations. 
And so your choices and your example are leaving an impact on the world. What kind of an impact will you leave? The wrong decisions can make big consequences, can't they? Financial consequences, relationship consequences, spiritual consequences. And so what we do is we tend to think really hard about the big decisions. Except here's the thing. We don't even know what the big decisions are, do we? Whether you go swimming on holidays at the beach, that feels like a little decision. But it just so happens that that was the time that there was a freak wave and your spinal injury means you never walk again. Turns out that was a really big decision. That's the hard thing about our decisions. We don't have all the information. We don't even have all the information to know which ones are the big ones. We don't know the future. And so what we do as Christians, we turn to God. We say, God, you, you know all the information. You love us. Well, what if you would just guide us? And that is what God has promised to do. So if you've got your notes there, page 3, look at Psalm 23. So what I've done is I've put all the passages we're going to look at in our notes so we can move through them really quickly. What I'd like to suggest is one thing you might do is just underline, circle or highlight bits that stand out to you as we go through God's Word and you can go back over it later. Uh, you can even maybe mark those in your Bible. But Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. He guides me. The Lord is our shepherd. That has to be one of the most comforting truths in the whole world. The God of the universe entering into relationship with sinful human beings. It's, it's bigger than LeBron James becoming the basketball coach for a mosquito. The Lord is my shepherd. He guides me along right paths. It's very, very comforting. Brothers and sisters, we don't need palm readers, horoscopes, star signs, astrology. Christians don't pay attention to any of those things. At their best, they're guesswork, aren't they? At their worst, it can even be dabbling in other spiritual forces. But we don't need to do that. We know the one true and living God the one who knows everything, and he's our Lord. And so we want to do what he wants. As Aussies, we've got the freedom to shape our lives however we want, but actually as Christians, we want our lives to be shaped by God's will. That's actually what a Christian is. Look at Mark chapter 3, verse 35 there. Who, Jesus says, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now our hearts are very prone to wander, aren't they? We can easily wander. So maybe just take a moment now in your own heart and ask God, Lord, this weekend, help me to want to do your will. But it can actually be quite a scary thought, that. Because what if God's will is for me to be a missionary? Or what if KFC is not God's will for my life? And actually deep down we can worry that God might actually be a little bit stingy or a little bit mean. 
That's why Psalm 23 verse 6 is really helpful because it says that God is a good shepherd. You can see it there in your notes. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Now good doesn't mean easy. (laughs) Good doesn't mean easy. But God's will for us will be good. If only we could work out what it is. And that's the problem, isn't it? I wonder if you felt this. We want God to guide us. But how? How do I know when God's guiding me? I wonder if you've ever tried to work out God's will for you in a difficult decision. And I wonder if you felt his guidance just seems so hard to find. Christians can even sometimes get jealous of non-Christians because it seems so much simpler for them. They don't have to worry about finding out God's will. They just, you know what a non-Christian does? They just look down deep inside and they ask, what do I want to do? And then... They just do that. And it sounds so simple. And it's so appealing to our sinful nature because what we, our sin wants to hear. Adding God to the process, it sometimes just feels like it makes it more complicated. But brothers and sisters, God does love you and he does know everything and he does have a plan for your life. He wants to guide you. So today and tomorrow morning, we're going to learn how do we discover God's will for our decisions. Let me give you the shape of the weekend ahead of us. This morning, we're going to look at God's invisible guidance. Then tonight, we're going to see how God visibly guides us. And tomorrow morning, we're going to look at lots of application and worked examples to see how it all works. But how about I pray that God will guide us this weekend? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to please you as our Father. We want to serve you as our Lord. And we want to trust you as our shepherd. Please help us to want to do your will. Then teach us to find it this weekend. And help us to live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're actually going to start by looking at the God who guides us. The God who guides us. Because the first thing to see in all of this, point number one, is that God is... God. God is God. Now that sounds very obvious, but it's actually not obvious to our sinful hearts. Deep down, our sinful nature is convinced that we are God. But look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. It says, God is the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honour and might forever. When everything is said and done, the number one thing that you need to know about decisions is that verse there. There's only one God. He's invisible, he's immortal, and he's the king. In fact, he's the king of kings. Every boss, every prime minister, every president is just a little kid compared to him. And so look at that final sentence there. To him be honour and might forever. That right there might not look like it, but it's the key to making decisions. No matter what decision you face, no matter who you are, God must be given the honour and the rule. That's the number one priority. Not following your heart, not your happiness, not even your kids' happiness. Not other people's opinions, not financial security. 
brothers and sisters, one of the most important things that you can ever realize is I'm not God. And so look at Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, the top of page 4 there. The psalmist David says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? What are human beings that you care for them? The stars, these, these giant exploding balls of nuclear activity thousands of light years away, they're not random. God set them in place with his fingers. And thinking about that makes David feel very, very small. He says, what is mankind? What are human beings that you care for them? I wonder, have you ever had that experience? When you've looked up at the sky, you looked out at the ocean, and you've realized your very smallness. Maybe this weekend, go for a bushwalk. Go down past the dining room there and look out and see beside the vast bulk of creation under the endless expanse of sky, you are teeny tiny. And that's just when you compare yourself to the work of God's fingers, let alone compared to God himself. And so that puts my questions into perspective, doesn't it? What will I do with my life? Every single day our world is telling us that the most important thing is that you're happy. That's actually not the most important thing, is it? That I'm happy or that you're happy? No, as as Psalm chapter 8 says in verse 1, Lord our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If you get one little glimpse of this, that God is God and you are not, you will find freedom. Freedom from slavery to your own desires and your fears and, and, and their opinions. You are not God. Let it drop. You are not God. And so not one decision that you ever make will be wise unless it starts with that assumption. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so as 1 Timothy 6.15 says, God is God. He deserves all the might and honor. And so decide to do that. In your decision making, that's God's will for you to learn to to give God the might and the honour. Which option out of these two options best shows God's might, God's rule in my life? Which one of these two options best gives God honour? That right there is the heart of decision-making. But I wonder how often it's the heart of your decision-making. I, we, we often do it around the other way. Even just think about the questions that we want guidance on. Think about this with me. What do we do? We always start with our selves. We always start with ourselves. What are my questions that I can get God to help me with? Where should I live? Where should I send my kids to school? Which friendships should I invest in? What should I do as my job with my money? Do you see what we're doing? 
We're starting with ourselves, with our concerns. Instead of starting with God and his concerns that he wants us to care about. How can we bring him most honour? Now, I'm not saying those questions are bad questions or unimportant, but do you notice who they put in the centre of things? Me. And whenever we do that, what we do, we never walk away with a bigger view of God and his world than ourselves. Imagine if I asked Monique, Monique, which one of my hobbies do you most enjoy me going out and doing? (laughs) Monique, which one of of my favourite meals do you most enjoy cooking for me? You know, I'm coming to Monique, I'm asking her thoughts. But it's very clear that the big agenda in my life is me. Well, the Bible says the big agenda in the world is actually God, first of all. Growing as a Christian means not learning to get God's answers for your questions. It means learning to ask God, what are your questions, God? What do you care about, God? And then learning to care about that as well. That is maturity. That's how you become God-shaped, God-centered. And so right there, we've already seen one of the big take-homes from this whole weekend. To learn to ask God, what are your questions that you want me to care about? And we've already seen two of them in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. Two things he wants us to care about. How can I best show God's rule in my life? And how can I best bring God honor with my life? And so, for example, it's not... I've already decided that I'll play soccer, but God, you tell me how can I play soccer in in the the way you want me to. It's, God, what what will I do on Saturday morning? Is soccer the best way to bring you honour, to show your rule in my life? And it might be. The answer could be soccer, but it could be something else. And then if it is soccer, if you're reading the Bible, working it out, you go, okay, that is the best way to bring God glory and show his rule in my life on Saturday morning. Then you ask, okay, how can I do that in a way that brings you glory? Do you see, I wonder if you need to, to slow down your decision-making just a step or two to ask, what does God think of this question? If you're not already asking that, that's definitely a good step to, to include. But maybe even to go back a step and say, is this even the right question? Maybe instead of, God, what colour do you want me to paint my walls? It's like, God, what do you really want me to be thinking about? And caring about maybe the color of the walls isn't even on the agenda maybe it's your neighbor who doesn't know jesus is there a bigger concern of god's that i've lost sight on because i've focused on the wrong thing here maturity is actually learning to get god's questions and ask them so this point number one god is god as we go through these talks you'll start to see god's concerns but here's the second point more than god just being god as big as that is god is also guiding That's point two on page four. One of the most comforting truths in the whole world is that God is guiding every single detail of his world. God didn't just make the world and then walk away. No, the Bible says God continues to be intimately involved with every detail of his world, right down to the atoms. He's sustaining He's directing all that happens so that every single thing that happens is exactly what God wants to happen. Now just think about what that means for a second. 
It means you cannot miss out on God's will for your life. You cannot miss out on God's will for your life. It's impossible. God's will for your life will happen because everything happens according to God's will. Now that's a big claim. I'm going to show it uh, from the Bible in a second. And don't worry, we move more quickly through the rest of these passages if you're like, oh, how long is this going for? We go much more quickly through these passages because what I'm going to do is show you God's, God's guidance over all things. But as we look at these passages, I wonder whether you've ever joined the dots between God's, God's guidance over everything and God's guidance over your life. Do that now as we join the dots. Notice the way this truth will comfort you if you feel the weight of your decision making. Notice how this truth will make you uncomfortable if you actually like to be in control. Let's look at the way God guides his world. First of all, nature. So Psalm 104 there is a beautiful picture of God's caring involvement with the natural world that he created. And I've put a few verses there. Verse 11, he makes springs pour water into ravines. Verse 13, he waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. Verse 14, he makes grass grow for the cattle. You see, God is the one who sends the rain and grows the plants. Yeah, we know he uses clouds and horse poo and all those things to do it, but it's God at work. And so verse 27 on the next page, all creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. Verse 28 says, when he gives them food, they eat. Verse 29 says, when he takes it away, they die. That's why we thank God before we eat, isn't it? We know it came from Coles or Aldi or Woolies. But ultimately, it came from God. If he didn't give us food, we would starve. And in fact, that's what God sometimes does. Amos chapter 4 verse 6. I gave you empty stomachs in every city. In fact, look at verse 7 there. You see the extent of his control, he can make it rain in one field, but not in the field next to it, not in the paddock next to it. God's in control of nature. But it's not just nature, God's in control of humans as well. You can see even the nations are under God's control. Psalm chapter 33, or Psalm 33, verse 10. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. You see, God controls the nations. In fact, even their kings, Proverbs 21, verse 1. In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. Anthony Albanese, Joe Biden, Dominic Perignon, Perite, they, they think they're in control. But actually, their hearts are in God's hand. He's in control. God can even create whole nations out of thin air. We won't read it, but Genesis chapter 15 there, God creates his own nation, Israel, out of a 100-year-old man and his wife who can't have kids. And in that second paragraph there, God says to Abraham, look up. At the sky, count the stars. That's how many your offspring will be. Out of a dead womb, a pair of geriatrics, God brings forth a whole nation. Every nation is under God's control. Israel, 
Egypt, Russia, Ukraine, China. Not just nations, thirdly, even events come from God too. So on page six now. Will the sun come up tomorrow? Only if God wants it to. Now you might say, no, 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 it happens every day. Well, not every day. In Joshua chapter 10, the sun stayed at midday, so it stayed up at midday for 24 hours because God wanted it to. What about things that are just chance, luck? Well, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, the lot, the dice, is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Even the most insignificant things, like how much hair you have, Neville. If you are bald today, brother, it's because it was God's will. Matthew chapter, 20, uh, chapter 10, verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid, you're worth more than many sparrows. You see, even the little birds flying and dying do so according to God's will. It doesn't matter what hair loss treatment you try. If God wants to, he could send you bald overnight. Don't worry, Neville, it's associated with higher intelligence and success. Put it all together, does this mean that every single thing that ever happens, happens because God wanted it to? Well, look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. What's the answer? Well, look at the way that verse describes God. He's the one who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Not just some things, everything. Not just the important things, not just the end results. No, God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Not one event happens anywhere in the world that God did not determine by his plan and will. And brothers and sisters, that even includes you. Everything you do is decided by God. Where and when you were born, look at Acts chapter 17 there, bottom of page 6. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Your street address, where your fence is, your birth certificate, all planned by God. Your decision to come today, God decided that. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 9, in their hearts humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. You thought it was you that decided to come, but God was the one who determined that you would come. A local high school near where I live had a, had a sign out the front. Very inspirational. The best way to know the future is to choose it. The best way to know the future is to choose it. That's very, very inspirational and probably a better attitude than, ah, don't worry about it. I'm just being lazy. But it's wrong, isn't it? You cannot ultimately choose your future. No matter what you plan, no matter how much or how little you, you work, no matter how much you think about your decisions, the Bible says, many, bottom of page six, many of the plans in a person's heart 
but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. And so page 7, Psalm 139, the psalmist writes, Your eyes, God, saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. From the moment of your birth to the day of your death, nothing that you think or plan or do is out of the control of God. Even you becoming a Christian, do you think it was you that chose God? My friend, he chose you. Acts chapter 13 verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life, chosen for eternal life, believed. You could see it as well in the Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 passage on the previous page. In him we were chosen. You see, all of this means that not only, God is, not only is God God, but God is also guiding. He's guiding every detail of his world. And so I wonder if you've ever heard someone say, you know, gee, that was a real God moment. Do you see a problem with that? Every moment is a God moment. God is always intimately involved with every detail of your life, as your father, as your shepherd. Isn't God incredible? Nothing is out of his hands. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing can stop his plans. And I wonder if you feel this takes some of the weight off your shoulders. The good God who loves you is in 100% control. As you think about the responsibility of your decision making, do you feel the weight lift? You see, whether or not you know how to find out God's will for your life, God will achieve his will for your life. No matter what, your life will go exactly where God wants it to go. Now this is called... The fancy title for this is God's will of decree. God's will of decree. It just means that whatever God has decreed, has planned, it happens. God decrees it and it is so. Now we don't know God's decrees in advance, but we can see them by looking in the rear vision mirror. You see, whatever happened, that was God's will. That's God's invisible guidance over all of our lives. And I wonder if it raises a question for you, does that mean it doesn't matter what we do? Does that mean it doesn't matter what we choose? And the answer is, kind of. It kind of does mean that. Now, your decisions still have consequences. But God will use them to achieve his plans. Let's, you make, let's say you make a silly decision. You let your wife buy a cat, right? I'm not, I'm not bitter about it. If you make a hypothetical foolish decision, most likely you'll have to suffer the consequences. Because God wants what's best for us, and that might be to learn from the consequences. But He is our shepherd. He is protecting us, and so we don't need to be too anxious about it. You see, if it's in our best interests to suffer the consequences, that's what He'll bring. But if it isn't, he'll spare us from them. 
Have a look at Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Halfway down page 7. This is the story of Joseph. You probably know the one. He's the guy that had the dreams of his brothers bowing down to him. And his dad made him a special jacket that none of his other brothers got. Great parenting example there. His, his brothers actually didn't think it was great parenting and they were a bit jealous of him. So they kidnapped him, sold him as a slave. He ends up in Egypt. When he's in Egypt, do you know how the story ends? God uses him to rescue countless people from famine. And so look what Joseph says, verse 19 and 20. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Do you see, Joseph's brother's decision actually had real consequences. I wonder if you've ever thought about this. Joseph missed his entire 20s. He spent his entire 20s in prison from when he was 17 to in his 30s. And so that was actually an evil act that was done to him and it had real consequences. But Joseph came to be able to see, we don't always see how, but Joseph came to be able to see how God was actually at work in that for good. The stuff I've been talking about here, God's sovereignty, that raises big questions for people often and I understand why and it raises questions for me. And we don't have time to go into all those now. So, you know, if it does raise questions, if you come talk, to a, come talk to a pastor, talk to me if you want. But I think there in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, is part of the, the answer. When evil happens, it is really evil. But it's in God's plan. It's not done by God, it's done by humans. But God uses it to bring about purposes that are good. Anyway, there's the end of a little sidebar. Does this mean our decisions don't have consequences? They do have consequences. But as you step back and look over all the things that God is guiding, nations and nature, events and you, there's a sobering realisation, isn't there? Your decisions are not nearly as important as you think they are. We lie awake sometimes at night worrying about our decisions. I have to get this right. If I don't get this right, my life's going to be ruined. But actually, most of the decisions that shape your life aren't made by you at all. They're made by other people for you and God over them. You see, your parents, they were the ones that chose what school to send you to. Someone in your past, probably, chose to move to Australia and that set the culture that you were born to, most of the values that you hold, all the people that you'll ever meet, all your friends, the person you'll perhaps one day marry, all of those things about you. Massive things about you. You had no say in any of those things. Of all the decisions that affect your life, you actually only make a tiny fraction of them yourself. That's very humbling, isn't it? Now, it would actually be terrifying if someone evil was in control of those decisions or if no one was in control. But that's not the case. The good God who loves you is in control. In fact, look at Romans chapter 8, verse 28, bottom of page 7. It says, God is guiding all of these things for your good. And we know that in all these things, you see there again, God's complete control in all these things. God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. 
a very, very helpful verse for you if you're someone who likes to be in control. If you like to be in control, hearing that actually God is in total control, that can actually make you very uncomfortable. How can I trust God to be in control? What if he mucks it up? But Paul says, actually, no, God's not, he's not mean, he's not cold, he's not a machine, and he doesn't make mistakes. He's good, he's perfect, and he's loving, and he's working all these things for your genuine good. I wonder if some people, oh no, um, yeah, some people, um, you can picture God's, God's will for your life, God's plan for you, a bit like Google Maps directions. We're coming here in the North Connects, and you know if you miss the turnoff from the North Connects, you're going to have to drive another 40 minutes and pick up like another $50 worth of tolls to get back on track. And you, you know, you miss the turnoff, and the, the little computer says rerouting. Sometimes people can picture God's guidance for their lives a bit like that. You, you think, as long as I make each turn off correctly, I'll stay in God's will. But if I make a mistake, you see, if I marry Mary when I should have married Martha, then I've stuffed it up. And now God's going to have to reroute me. God had a good plan for my life, but I missed it. And now God's going to have to give me his second best. I wonder if you see what's wrong with that. Well, for one thing, you're going to make more than one mistake. Every sin, by definition, is a wrong turn. And so after one year, you're already on to God, what, 10,000th best plan for your life? But actually, there's an even bigger problem with it. It makes God depend on us. It's as though God is helpless to fix the situation if we were to go off script. No, no, no. God is far more powerful than that. God always achieves his goals. There's no such thing as getting God's second best. Many times Christians carry regret for past decisions. And you'd give anything to be able to go back and change the past. But do you see, brothers and sisters, that God was in control even then? It hasn't broken God's plans. It was in God's sovereign plan. Now that doesn't necessarily make it okay, what, what happened. It, it might have still left a scar. But you haven't derailed God's plan for your life. You can trust God even with your past. And you can trust him with your future too. Do you see the confidence that this truth gives you? Rest in this truth this morning, today, the rest of your life. You will not wreck God's plan for your life. But that actually raises the question, what is that plan? Because this isn't prosperity theology. See, what I've said so far does not mean that if you trust God, then the details of that plan will be health and wealth and success. It might actually be sickness and poverty and failure. But in all those things, God will be at work carrying out his plan for your genuine good, not just your superficial good. And so what's that good? What's well, to make you more like Jesus? Look in your booklets again at Romans chapter 8, page 7. But look this time at verse 29. I wonder how often we read the second verse. Because we've just seen in verse 28, God's working for our good. But verse 29 then explains what that good is. For, because, 
those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What are we predestined for? To be conformed to the image of his Son, to be made like Jesus. Bottom of page 7 there. God's plan for you, your genuine good, is that you will be made like Jesus. Now, I wonder if deep down that may not sound as good as the really nice house, the great job, the beautiful wife. Well, that just means we're a little bit worldly. We're a little bit worldly. Because if we really saw what it means to be like Jesus, we would want that. And so what we're going to do is finish by just unpacking God's plan. Third point here, where is God guiding us? I wonder if you're ready to hear God's plan for your life. Ephesians chapter 1 gives you the great wide-angle picture of God's plan. And it starts before the creation of the world and it climaxes at the very end of everything. And what might surprise you is that the very heart of God's plan is to bless you. It's to bless you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. God's eternal plan is to bless us. Just stop and think about how incredible that is. The God that we've seen this morning that, that rules the cosmos, that's in control of everything, who's, who's God himself, his plan from eternity is to bless you. And not just a little bit. Verse 3 says he's given you every spiritual blessing in Christ. In fact, he's already done it. It says that he has blessed us. If there's a spiritual blessing to be received, he's already given it to you. You could not be richer. And Ephesians chapter 1 shows us what those blessings are. It's the, it's the blueprint of God's plan for your life. So let me point out four, four big blessings in here. Number one, verse 4, he chose us. Verse 4 says he chose us. Before the world even existed, God's power is so great that he can look down through generation of generation after generation of people, none of whom have ever been born yet, and he can choose you. And then he can make sure that you hear about Jesus and he can open your heart to believe it. And God did that for us before the beginning of the world. Number two, look what we've been chosen and predestined for. To belong to God. He chose us, verse 4, in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. There's a footnote I didn't delete there. Adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. You have been chosen to be adopted as God's son or daughter. God looked down through time and said, you... I want you to be in my family. I want you to be my son, to be my daughter. I don't know what experiences or things you're afraid of missing out on in life. Love, pleasure, experiences, 
a house or a family, success. None of those things are small things, but they actually are small when you compare them to what you already have. Compared to being the beloved and treasured son of God or daughter of God. You could be as rich as Jeff Bezos. You could be as successful as Elon Musk. You could star in your own movies and have the romance of a lifetime. You could be the CrossFit world champion. Compared to being God's treasured child, you'd still have nothing. Brothers and sisters, we are afraid of missing out on the wrong things. We aim too low, but God knows better. His plan from before the creation of the world was for you to be his adopted and adored child. And if you are, you've got everything that's worth having. And that's especially true if you were to compare it with Satan's plan for your life. We won't read it now, but if you were to look at Ephesians chapter 2 later, you'd see that Satan doesn't have children, he has captives. Satan's plan for you was to be spiritually dead and disobedient and always struggling to satisfy sinful cravings that can never be satiated to the point that you deserve God's wrath. That's Satan's plan for you. But blessing number three is that we've actually been rescued from Satan's plan for us. Blessing number three, verse seven, is called redemption. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The word redemption means rescue, means to be pay a price to set someone free. With his blood, Jesus paid the price for every sin that you've ever committed. He paid the ransom price so you could be set free. Every time you ever made a decision without caring about God's will. Every sin, all of it forgiven by Jesus' blood. And so now we are joined to Jesus spiritually. We're alive with Jesus now spiritually. And we have a certain future of living forever with Jesus. And because we're joined to Jesus, we're being changed to look more like Jesus Check out Ephesians chapter 4, also there on page 8. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 22 says, You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new. This is part of our redemption. We're being set free from sin to, to get rid of the old destructive way of life and have a new self. Verse 23, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God. In true righteousness and holiness. You see, your redemption is not just to save you from the punishment of sin, because that would leave the job half done. You'd still, be, you'd still be corrupted. Redemption means that you are also being rescued even from the presence of sin in your life. Not just the punishment, also the presence of sin. Now, that's a process. It's a process that starts now, ongoing in this life, and perfected in heaven. And so God's plan for you is to save you and make you more like Jesus. There's one more blessing I want you to see. Finally, he wants us to be involved in his plan. He's told us what his plan is and he wants us to be involved. So look back at Ephesians chapter 1, still there on page 8. And look at verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will. God's secret plan, he's told us what it is. 
And it's all about the end of time. Look at verse 10. To be put into effect. When the times reach their fulfillment, what's this plan? Where's he taking all of history? Verse 10, his plan is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. United under Christ. That's God's plan. God's plan is that Jesus will rule everything. On the last day, when Jesus returns, everything will be under Christ. So why did God choose you and save you? For Jesus. Why is God transforming us? For Jesus. At the end of history, everything will be under Jesus as everyone and everything sees that Jesus is the glorious Saviour and Lord that he is. That's God's big plan for the universe. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, on page 9 there, sums it up this way. Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so let me finish. What's God's will for your life? Why is it that you were born? To be saved by Jesus. To be transformed, to be more like Jesus. To be on mission with Jesus. To see other people saved and transformed by Jesus. So that together we will all join in glorifying Jesus. That's where God's invisible guidance is taking you. Now do you see how that helps with your decision making? Well we'll spell out the details of that a bit more this afternoon. But for now, I think it does help. I think it changes the questions that we ask. Do you see how? What are the biggest decisions that you face? It's actually not, where should I live? What school should I send my kids to? How should I parent? What job should I work? Those are actually quite little things in the great scheme of things. No, no, no. The biggest question you'll face is, how can you make wherever it is that you live, wherever that may be, be about Jesus and his glory, not myself. No matter how it is that I parent and wherever I send my kids to school, how can I do that in a way that brings Jesus honour? No matter what job I work, how can I work in a way that brings Jesus the honour and the glory? How can I grow more like Jesus and do, do good and bring people to know him? How can every breath that I take from now... Until my death, be about 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. To God be the honour and light forever. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are God. And we ask, please, that you would be our God. And that our hearts might be caught up with what you're on about in the world. Please do make us more like Jesus. For those that we know that don't know you, please save them. And we pray that all the decisions we make would put you, your rule, your, your will and your glory first of all in our thinking. In Jesus' name, amen.